Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. It's another very cold day in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you once again are listening to the Heritage Radio Network Week in Review. My name is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer in the studio here, and I'm joined by the one and only executive director of the whole network, Aaron Fairbanks. What's up, Aaron? Hey, man. I am just here trying to stay warm, trying to like embrace the, the winter and enjoy it for all the benefits it brings into my life. Well, you're 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 from up north. You, you you know this is nothing new to you. It's nothing. Wait, I've been in the city for ten years, so I think at a certain point, <laughs> no matter where you're from, you got to be like, ah, oh, this is kind of more my situation now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I definitely went for this year and just kind of geared up, which makes all the difference with the cold. I have not done that. I still wear my same hoodie and same light little jacket. I need to step it up. I highly recommend the Uniqlo Heat Tech. The Japanese Ooh. know what's up with the warm and cozy undergarments. So. Noted. Um, so welcome to this program. If it's your first time listening, this is where we try to distill and recap the immense week of programming that we've had here at Heritage Radio Network with over 35 shows a week. There's a lot to digest, and there's tons happening here at the network, so we try to distill it for you in a little, little bite-sized format here. And we'd like to sh- start every week in review with our last great bite. Aaron, maybe you want to kick this off. Yes, I do. Uh, so we were out, um, you know, we host the week, uh, the monthly ladies' night parties or a, a get together, a hang for um, amazing women and, and food and business to connect. And we were over at 61 Local earlier this week, a, a wonderful spot down in Carroll Gardens, and um, got the meze plate. And I was so tickled that the bread they served it with was the mesemin from a hot bread kitchen. This uh, is like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite ways to uh, enjoy labna or hummus or any of the kind of dipping situations. Hot Bread Kitchen is a uh, incubator. It, it works with um, immigrant women, helping them learn about building their own businesses, learning to bake breads. And the most cool thing about it is they really allow the breads from all the different cultures of the women they work with to come to the fore. And the mesemin is this kind of like flat, layered, flaky, kind of has a little oil in there, has a little honey in it, um, and it's just super delicious. And it was such a treat to to get it like out and about. I was like, is this the mesemin? I like went down and asked the bartender. I'm like, you guys are really making like a soigne plate here. I'm into this. Wow. Leveled yeah. up. Very super nice. Super delicious. I'll continue kind of the home cooking chronicles here. And, uh, I, I, I this week went with another Melissa Clark recipe. Shout out to Melissa Clark again. Um, and this one, you know, it's funny. I go to the New York Times cooking app. It's kind of like if I'm not cooking from a cookbook at home, that's like the first place I go is the Times cooking app. Nice. And I definitely kind of like I sort the recipes by two ways. Um, vegetarian as um, my girlfriend is vegetarian. And cooking time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. You're yes. Like, How much time do we got? Exactly. So uh, I made her spicy pan fried noodles, which were so legit. Um, and and one of my like proudest moments in the kitchen. It was just it came together so easily and so nicely. Um, 
yeah, I, I highly recommend that if you want a nice quick weeknight meal. And it's it's kind of like a pantry cleaner. There's not doesn't really call for too many things. Um, you know, you got to probably go get some scallions, but really really great recipe. And uh, thanks, Melissa Clark, for making them easy for us who don't have uh, all the time in the world. I love that. I love sorting by time. That's so smart. I want to. I, I definitely haven't checked out that app. I'm going to take a peek. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, all right, so moving on, let's uh, let's go to the studio and listen to some clips from this week. So, as I'm sure you are aware, um, this is Valentine's Day weekend. Aww. Or President's Day weekend, I guess, oh, depending oh, on which oh. way you want to take it, right? <laughs> I always think, I have two sisters, actually, who were both born on Valentine's Day who are not twins, so I think of it as wow. Carla and Dana's birthday. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you might trace it back to, I think my parents' anniversary is somewhere right around nine months before that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, uh, why don't we jump right into the Valentine's Day theme with a clip from our, our love show, Love Bites hosted by Jacqueline Raposo and Ben Rosenblatt. Really, I know this is one of your favorite shows, Aaron, and every week they kind of uh, tackle dating advice, love advice, and uh, they had an author named Lisa Phillips on the program whose book, Unrequited Love, Women and Romantic Obsession, was just re-released. So this is them kind of talking about romantic obsession that I'm pretty sure all of us have experienced at some point. (laughs) Let's see what they have to say. What, why do we fall into this trap? What is it that makes people experience unrequited love and think that these things are going to work? How does, like, what's going on in our brains or what are, what is our, like, inner motivation here? Um, you know, there's so many reasons that people get into uh, unrequited love. And it's important to keep in mind that really every relationship, every love relationship, or almost every love relationship begins with this period of mystery when you don't really know how the other person feels. It's the crush phase. And that phase in many ways can be really sweet, uh, though also tortured, because you're doing that thing that, Ben, you mentioned about doubt and hope, doubt and hope. Um, You're living with a mystery, and you're trying to figure out how the other person feels, and then something will get started, or it won't. Or it'll get started and it gets cut off. And then the person who's still into the other person remains really involved, thinking about the person and the feelings get more intense anyway. <laughs> I feel like people might be wondering, like, wait, what? How is this show about food? Well, you know, they do touch on it now and again, dating in the food industry. Oh, I think it's such a big deal. And also kind of when you're like out and about, um, how people eat often informs like, uh, a large level of attraction. I totally relate to unrequited love. Actually, unrequited love kind of got me into food. I definitely I had a monster crush on Roger Bowser. He was the chef at Zingerman's Deli back in the day. And I was kind of like up to just do whatever and hang with him. And, and that was really like my entree into like looking at sourcing and local food procurement. And um, also me imagining myself in some type of like Victorian novel. Um, <laughs> with my like unrequited situation, but so I have unrequited love to thank for many points in my career. Wow! Yeah, shout out to Roger Bowser. Write us with your unrequited love stories. Tell you know if, if you're out there and you have one you want to share, we'll yeah, take it. You can we'll stay anonymous. It. Yeah, you can stay anonymous, or like you know maybe we can help you send a secret message to like your foodie foodie crush. That's right. 
Hopefully, it's one of our hosts. Um, so the next clip I want to play here is uh, two of our hosts talking together. This is Emily Peterson and Jen Liuzzi um, on Sharp and Hot, which is Emily's show. Jen Liuzzi, of course, the host of Tech Bytes, another program on the network. And they had a very, um, a, a very like uh, provocative conversation on passion and making a career in food, something that I think both of them have been exploring on their shows quite a bit lately. So let's take a peek into that conversation. Do what you love and the world will rise up and meet you. And I had to put on the side burner the idea that that was going to come with money, come along with money immediately. That somehow the passion and the money were going to, it was going to be this perfect synthesis of everything was going to land at the same time. Did it happen? No. Still hasn't really. I mean, and that's the thing is it's a moving target. So sort of, you know, like I, I can pay my bills. I work at NYU and I teach in the food studies department. Like I have wonderful things, but like if you'd asked me then what, aren't you getting paid to do what you love? Didn't it rise to meet you? Very much so. So it did work out, but that's what I mean about the moving target and being careful when you are saying, I want to work, I want to do this one particular thing because then you get there and it's, it's suddenly further down the road. Right. It's like, oh, well, oh, I did that. Okay, now that's behind me. Now what? You know, maybe it's a personality type that I have where it's like, I'm going to keep, well, I did that, you know, and reach for the next rung and reach for the next rung higher. And so... I'm sure you can relate to this. <laughs> I feel like this has been an ongoing conversation with our um, intern team here. And I think with a lot of our hosts, I mean, there's a certain amount of like what happens when you kind of hit the goal that you set out for, but you haven't actually taken that moment to think about like what's next. And I, it really makes me think of our evolutionary series. Cause I think so many of the folks that we profile in that series kind of had this moment where they were working so hard for, you know, five, 10 years. And then they hit a little bit of success, a little bit of a career plateau. And they really have to ask themselves like, Ooh, what's next? Like, how do I dig a little deeper? So I think for folks who are looking for inspiration and some models and how to do that, definitely check out the evolutionaries. I would recommend starting in with, with um, uh, Ariane de Goon from D'Artagnan. Um, I love, love, love her story of like going from making rillettes on her stovetop in her like shitty New York apartment to having like a football sized stadium, um, you know, meat system out in Jersey. It's kind of mind-blowing yeah a very good tip definitely check out the evolutionaries and and i think this is this is a great topic that i I hope jen and um emily continue to explore every time i talk to aaron the host of gunwash we both we kind of agree it's like if you ever get to the point in your life where you're like yep it's all good everything's great then you're doing something wrong you know (laughs) something's like something's wrong with that picture um so let's round out the studio clips here with with a really special piece this is um the saxelby scholars program and aaron maybe you want to introduce the saxelby scholars program Sure. So uh, this was really uh, the brainchild of Bill and Pam Saxelby, um, parents to one Anne Saxelby, who was a longtime host on the radio network. She hosted Cutting the Curd. And they were really looking for a way to give back to high school students. They felt like, wow, our kids were able to take advantage of so many opportunities in the food world because they have the safety net of us. And maybe we could provide that for some other students. And We sat down with them and really did a lot of brainstorming and decided to put together this scholarship program that could, 
you know, put some cash in the hands of some of these kids, but also really give them some workforce development skills around, um, you know, radio production, interviewing. So we work with uh, six high school students from the Food and Finance High School this year, uh, students from four different boroughs in the city. And over the course of 10 weeks, Caitlin Pierce, our program administrator, took them through the ins and outs of creating a radio piece. So these students went out into their communities, into their homes, throughout the school, armed with microphones, and have come back to us with six incredibly diverse pieces telling the story of food and and how it relates to them, how it relates to their community. They're super intimate. They're really powerful. And I'm excited to uh, share them with you guys. They're in the process of um, being sent out to our selection committee, the... um, kind of grand prize winner uh, takes home a $2,000 scholarship. It's $2,000 cash money that they can use for further schooling or to support um, some like funding to do an internship program or really whatever the students deem is going to be necessary for them. But yeah. it's been such a treat. It's my favorite thing to work on all year. I mean, like it's, it's, it blows my mind when I get the footage and the, and the recordings back from these kids. It's like, wow, you're so ahead of, of your years. Um, so let's take a little peek into one of these. This is a student. Her name is Jessica Eng. And this is how her piece begins just to give you an idea of like what, what kind of content we're dealing with here. So. Here we go. That's my grandma talking. She grew up in a traditional Chinese family and doesn't speak English too well. I'm an American-born Chinese, raised in Bayside, Queens, a secluded area where the only thing to eat outside my home was pizza, which was on every corner. Despite this, my grandma made sure to keep us in touch with our Chinese roots. My grandma always stays within the Chinese community and cooks and eats strictly Chinese food. But my mom was different. She came to America from Hong Kong when she was seven. Just a little peek into these incredible stories that they're telling. I'm so excited for them to kind of finish up and, and, and share them all with the world. Stay tuned. Uh, I think we'll be releasing them the second week of March. Very, very exciting. All right. And with that, let's uh, transition into the breakdown section of this show. So, Aaron, I I, I hear you have a... (laughs) Really exciting breakdown for us this week. I always get so amped when that song comes on. I know, right? <laughs> and I'm excited to welcome um, Holly Cedarholm. Holly is host of the Farm Report here on the Heritage Radio Network, but her involvement in agriculture, particularly organic agriculture, spans over a decade. Um, she has done freelance writing, community organizing, she owned and operated her own farm business. Um, she's sat in a federal courtroom with Monsanto lawyers. She's written a peer-reviewed handbook on GMO avoidance strategies for farmers and presented seed policy to farmers and organic organizations in Istanbul. And we brought Holly on this week because she just got back. She was out in Oregon at the Organic Seed Growers Conference. This is a conference that's put on every two years by the Organic Seed Alliance. 
And um, we want to get a little bit of a breakdown from her. Um, you know, for those of us who don't spend our time thinking about seeds, um, a little bit of an update of kind of what's happening in that world, what, sh- what we should be thinking about and like why it's important. So Holly, I'm giving you like a, a big open space to, to download with us. And I'm really excited to get the details because we haven't even talked. I'm, so this is going to be my first time hearing about it, too. Oh, well, thanks, Erin and Jack. I'm really excited to be on the line to talk with you guys. So seeds, um, as you've mentioned, are sort of a big part of my world, and really they're a big part of everyone's world. Everyone that eats um, is interacting with, with seed, whether they realize it or not, because seeds are essentially the basis of all agriculture. And as you mentioned, um, the conference that I just got back from in Corvallis was dedicated largely, I mean, it's the Organic Seed Growers Conference. So organic seed is really important because it's produced in the same low-input organic systems that organic farmers utilize. So it's seed that's not being grown with chemical fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and therefore will work better in those organic systems when the farmers in turn grow them out for their crops. Um, So it will also be focused on some disease resistance and climate variables that will really situate those seeds um, for best use by organic farmers. Um, And at the conference, which I've been attending biennially since 2012, so this is my third time going, um, I'm really reminded of all the beauty and the power of seeds, but also a lot of the challenges that face the seed industry, and with it, the sovereignty of the entire global food system. It's like they're that important. Um, Wow. And so so the theme of uh, 2016 was cultivating resilience, And that took a lot of different strokes across the two-day agenda. But what I really focused on um, was going to a lot of the workshops about plant breeding, and there was a lot. I couldn't go to all of them. Um, But they talked about um, integrating different stakeholders, like chefs, into the plant breeding system and also breeding for climate change and that sort of stuff. And as I went from workshop to workshop, I was really struck by how important this work is um, and how it was once so universal throughout humanity and now it's really removed from the ordinary everyday for such a large part of the population Um, and it's existing in panel discussions, which is really great, Um, but these discussions were bringing in farmers and seed company owners um, and professors from as far away as Canada and Ireland and Italy and the Netherlands. And these people, after the workshops, I, I caught up with them. They were saying things like, I wish I had this type of seed community and resources in my country. Um, so this is at the same time I find really terrific and really terrifying um, because there's been this erosion of these really necessary skills in terms of seed stewardship um, that used to just be part and parcel to planting seed. Gardeners would plant seed and then they would save the seed. There wasn't this large existence of seed companies that there is now. Um, And I don't recall the exact statistic, but um, in terms of university plant breeders, which are a huge cornerstone of the land-grant university system, they're kind of a dying breed. There's currently not enough young people pursuing this career path to replenish the currently held positions. And I think part of this has to do with um, intellectual property on plants. So that was one thing that was kind of a big take-home for me at this year's conference is that, um, like I said, farmers have 
long been had this long-standing relationship with seed and they've been plant breeders for a long time on their own farms but this narrative has been shifting through the adoption of different forms of intellectual property so um the the scariest one for me and the the biggest one that causes an issue is utility patents so a patent on seed basically locks up the genetics to the exclusivity of the patent holder. So it allows um, a patent holder to um, have, like, control over the seed, and that way farmers can't replant the seed and breeders can't really do research on it. And with this, there's been this other rising problem, which is that um, it's allowed for consolidation to ha- to rapidly happen in the seed industry so that lots of corporations own a lot of the genetic diversity. So in the way this kind of plans out, pans out, I'll kind of give um, an example is that, like, say I'm a farmer breeder selecting um, for some Chantenay carrots on my farm, so these nice squat-shouldered little stout carrots, and I want them to be more red than orange. Mm-hmm. Well, I might through doing this selection, like, I might end up being in violation of a patent on a trait for increased lycopene, lycopene um, which is a trait in plants that might go it's, it, go hand-in-hand with that color, um, and that might have a patent on it by a multinational corporation. And it doesn't even matter that these carrots have been expressing these genetics since the dawn of carrotdom. So... <laughs> So a plant breeder could see, like, a decade of their work locked up by a single patent, and that's that's really scary. So wow. there, there's a lot of – so there's a lot of that kind of discussion going on. But on the other hand, there's some really, really great um, education pieces and real reasons to celebrate that that were culminating at this conference, as I've seen every, every two years. So um, – one thing that, in terms of the patent world, um, there's an, an open source model of seeds that has been, I don't know exactly when it found it, but it was one of the sort of buzzes at the conference this year called the Open Source Seed Initiative, and it's kind of a network of plant breeders who have come together and who have pledged to some of their varieties to be open source and to stay in the public domain and to not be patented. So there are some alternates to that. And then there's also some other really good education happening um, in terms of awareness around plant breeding and the importance of it. And I know, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the Farm Report this week, but I had a conversation with some folks behind the Culinary Breeding Network, which um, is a collaboration between researchers at Oregon State University that kind of bring together plant breeders and chefs to kind of talk about what's important um, in plant breeding and what's important in the sort of culinary perspective um, for everyday eaters. So there's some really great collaborations happening um, and some things that I think will bring the importance and value of seed into the mainstream, which I would really like to see. Wow. That, I mean, kudos to you on that amazing, like, wrap-up and also sparking, like, a million questions here that I'm sad we don't have. Like, I'm like, I'm like, can we get coffee later and talk more about this? Um, and I, I think, too, um, when uh, I was thinking about kind of the narrative of seeds in kind of literature or pop culture, this idea that, 
you know, people come uh, when they immigrate to immigrate to the U.S., they like bring seeds from their hometown. But even just recently as the like Mad Max movie, you know, Fury Road, like having kind of access to seeds was one of the most kind of like valuable assets um, like in that kind of uh, post-apocalyptic world. So I think like seats are definitely something that we need to be kind of thinking about our, our role in like stewarding and shepherding. And, and I think Holly, you gave us some great jumping off points. I know folks, if they want to learn more um, about the Seed Alliance, it's just seedalliance.org. And then you can also tune into Holly's program, The Farm Report, where um, she has put up some coverage of this and will continue to do more. Holly, thank you so much. That was awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be on. All right. Well, that takes us. Wow. You that know, was, right? What a report. I like smart. I was like, damn. Real she, legit. She knows a lot of stuff. Just turn this into a real news show. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. <laughs> All right. On. Why don't we close out the show with uh, what we like to call big ups? <laughs> Music, of course, courtesy of the band Big Ups, Friends of the Network. Uh, this is where we like to big up people, places, things, uh, anything that we feel like bigging up, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you kick it off, Erin. Well, I feel like it's a very special big ups for me this week because uh, I want to give out some big ups to my moms, who is actually sitting here in the studio across from me. Uh, she's in town visiting for the weekend from northern Michigan. Um, so big ups to my mom personally, but to just moms out there. I think one of the things that has been so interesting, um, kind of going back to this conversation that you know Emily and Jennifer were having about passion and finding your work, it's like the older I get, I feel like the more I realize I am so much like my mom and have like so many, um, so many of these like great traits of mine that I would like to claim sole credit for are actually things I learned from her and then she modeled growing up. And I, you know, I'm not always great about telling her that. So I'm like, I'm looking out at you, mom. Now I'm getting a little choked up. Mom's out there across the world. Just know that your kids, you know, even if they don't always say it, they're really feeling it. So big ups, big ups to moms. That's, that's my, Oh man. That was beautiful. Awkward, emotional. Well, how am I supposed (laughs) to big up Kanye West after you big up your mom? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. As much as I do want to big up Kanye West, I got to give a a more appropriate big ups to the team at Northern Spy, uh, which is sadly closing its doors. Um, Christoph Hill, the owner, or Hille, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name, had been a guest on the network a bunch and was always very, very pleasant. And, um, you know, we know Pete Lipson, the, the chef there, was really great to work with. I know the Heritage Foods team had a relationship with Northern Spy. If you never went to Northern Northern Spy, really delicious vegetable forward stuff. Um, not only vegetables, but I mean, they kind of made waves with the $18 carrot entree, which <laughs> sort of went viral back in the day. And uh, I've had a few great meals there. And uh, just, yeah, sending a big ups to that team and hoping that their next move is uh, as good as this one was. Yeah, neighborhood restaurants. You got to just go, man. And pick up Kanye West. <laughs> Yeezy. What is it? Yeezy. It's three something. What is Yeezy it? Yeezy season three. Season three. Yeah. If, if, I, if I can tack on a little quick thing there. Please. You know, he gets for all the bad and there's plenty of it with, with when, when you talk about him. Um, he really broke a glass ceiling with this fashion line that he put out. And uh, I think historically fashion has been a real place of generational wealth and uh, exclusion and exclusivity. And for a kid from the South side of Chicago to come 
break that glass ceiling and say, I'm doing it, take over Madison Square Garden, unleash a fashion line with, I mean, it was, it was just a great thing to see. So, so if we can put aside all the, the, um, you know, undesirables that come with him, I think there's, there's a lot there to celebrate. So (laughs) you're like, we can compartmentalize our affection for Yeezy, which I definitely can relate to (laughs) as a lover of his music and a person who is quite confused by almost everything else he does oh yeah <laughs> well thanks so much Aaron, and uh thank you all for listening to the week in review if there are uh things you'd like to hear more of things you'd like to hear less of please get in touch with us we're heritage underscore radio on twitter we're info at heritage on the email we're here at roberta's if you want to just come knock on the door uh, we'd be happy to see you and show you around so with that have a wonderfully warm and pleasant Valentine's Day or President's Day, depending on which way you want to take <laughs> Sending it. Sending you love. I love our president, so there's that. There we, oh, I'm, I am sad about the end of the Obama. Yeah, well, let's think about Obama on this President's Day, maybe. Here's to you. <laughs> Big ups to you, Obama. We'll see you all next week. <laughs> Bye.